0: Welcome to the Blazers Edge podcast. I'm Tara, and today I am joined by another Blazers Edge family member, Brian Freeman. Welcome to the show, Brian.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Tara.
0: Brian, you are a features writer for the site, and you've recently retired from an eight-year career playing basketball in Europe. I am really looking forward to talking to you about the Blazers and hearing more about basketball life.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Absolutely.
0: We are just a couple days out from the NBA Draft Lottery that just happened. Did you watch the show on TV while it was happening?
1: No, I didn't, I didn't watch the show, I was, uh, but I had my Twitter up and I was just sitting there following and refreshing, 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 like I can't think most people were.
0: Did you see any of the um, gifts of uh, Joel Embiid?
1: <laughs> yes, I did.
0: He was awesome. He was absolutely my favorite part of that whole thing. Like he, his face was just reflecting what everybody else was thinking. Like half the time he was like bored. Another big portion of the time he was confused and then he was just like elated. And then he was like, Oh wait, was that really a good thing? I'm not quite sure what's happening next. (laughs) It all all just played out on his face. It was awesome. So, so the Boston Celtics ended up with a number one draft pick. What do you think they're going to do with it?
1: Well, I think I think they're going to go ahead and take uh, and take faults. That seems to be the the overwhelming the overwhelming uh, majority of, of people who think that. Um, but obviously, the next question is: Do they trade it? Do they keep it? And I think that all depends on what's available. I know we're going to talk about Paul George here in a little bit, but uh, you know that might be one of the one of the options. But who knows how that's going to turn out? There's just not a whole lot of if they can if they can find the right person to to come in. I think they'd much rather have a nba nba ready player i mean they're in the eastern conference finals even if they're losing by 40 at least they're there so i would think they'd much rather have an an older player who can help if they if they get one available that can help them right away If, if the right trade is there i think they do that but they don't lose anything by having by having him running their program for the next some odd years
0: do you remember danny age when he was in portland
1: um briefly yes i do
0: did you ever think that he was going to be, like, this mastermind of <laughs> of behind the Boston Celtics?
1: I'm, as that's the funny thing about, you know, when, when we were young is you watch these players, but we don't have the Twitter. We don't have all those other—we didn't have all these writers really getting into deep about these, these people. So you think you know them. You know, you watch them on their court. You watch their antics and all that. So you think you know them, and then 10 years later, it's like, oh, it's, you're nothing like I imagined.
0: Yeah, I, know. I just remember watching him, and he was a good three-point shooter, and I think before we got him, like, we didn't have, like, a really strong three-point shooter, and he came in, and he could put in the three, and he was quite handsome, and, you know, that was pretty much all I remember about Danny Ainge, but yeah, he seems to pretty, like, really have a handle on things in Boston. I don't know, I just, I'm trying to decide whether or not he's gonna keep it and immediately trade it, or if he's gonna trade it beforehand, and I don't, I don't remember really – I don't know that much about um, draft history to know how often uh, people with the high picks actually trade the pick itself or if they're more likely to um, make the trade and then do the – or make the pick and then do the trade.
1: Well, the most recent example we have is uh, when LeBron came to the Cavs and they traded Andrew Wiggins for Kevin Love. That's good. So you know so that's our most recent example of that and I mean if you're watching the Cavs right now that was a turned out to work out pretty well for him obviously in the future we'll, we'll see and there's been some back and forth on how how you know if they would go back and redo that but they won a championship last year they're looking good this year it mean, looks looks pretty good for them I think LeBron would would have rather had somebody who was older and ready to contribute right away than have a project for two or three years and it just uh, I think it's just going to depend on what's available. If they can get somebody that can help them right away and put them in a position where they can compete with the cabs, then, yeah, maybe they do pull the trigger. But if not, they're still in. They, they can't make a bad move. This is... Game.
0: This next month is going to be, I mean, just the month leading up to the lottery, not to mention the time of, or the month leading up to the draft, and then we have the time in the lottery, that's like the second and third seasons, or maybe it's like the third and the fourth season of NBA, and it's like almost as much fun as the actual season itself i think <laughs> trying to find out what everybody's going to do what they're what mo- you know what deals are going to be in play who's going to go where the entertainment value is almost as high as the games themselves i think
1: oh i'm with you 100% i think my my uh, phone bill goes up cuz i'm constantly texting trade ideas to people and hey hey should they do this hey hey how do you feel about this and my twitter is just going to be filled with nba trade machine ideas some of them that are great some are just horrible but Uh, I get excited about that stuff. I'm with you. That's, that's so interesting. So much fun.
0: Well, and they, they put all the information out there so that you can play around with it. I mean, that's what I think is so, and and that's, one of the things that I think sports has done, like, in the last 10 years or so, they make all that information available. So you can figure out if the trade is even within the realm of possibility. And you can really dig deep researching players and their past and their history. I don't know. I just, I think it's fast. So you feel like, even though you're not actually participating, you feel like you are. And, you know, if somebody makes the move that you thought of, then you can, like, brag about it and
1: be like. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's like I am
0: Oh, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you what you think the Blazers are gonna do with their three picks. Uh,
1: well, I think right now, salary cap wise, I guess it's pretty obvious we're kind of in a in a tough position. So, so hopefully we're, you know, even though we're in a tough tough position, we do have assets, we do have ability to get out of that that tough position, and you know, I think we have I think we have a couple different options. I mean, the most the best option for us would be use those those. Picks to get a bigger piece to make us a contender right away. I mean, if we could, if we could pull something off like that, that would be best case scenario, I think. But once again, it depends on what's available. Then we could just, you know, we could just use the picks just to clear cap space. That's probably there. And then our worst option is probably just keep players and roll out the same mediocre team <laughs> with a huge, cap-
0: <laughs> yeah. huge cap up. My guess is, if I had to guess, I would think. I think we're going to trade at least one, we're going to keep at least one and then I don't know what's going to happen with that third. But I'm I'm pretty sure we're going to I mean because we with the roster as it exists, there's going to have to be some some jostling uh, even just like with the number of players, not even counting how much money pe- we owe people, but just like sheer numbers of players. We can't draft three new players when we've only lost one for sure right now Festus Azili. Um but so yeah, I don't I don't know how that's all going to shake out but I'm pretty sure we're going to trade at least one, and I'm pretty sure we're going to keep at least one. Um, but, yeah, who knows what the Blazers are going to do.
1: Yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm hoping for there's a, there's a bigger deal that comes where we can get rid of you know, a couple players and a couple picks and be able to bring it out.
0: Well, that was weird. We, I lost you for a second there. I think we got taken over by aliens, but um, let's go ahead and move on. And um, another thing that happened recently are the all NBA teams were just announced. No Blazers. Probably not a big surprise. <laughs> it was nice to have Damian Lillard on the team before, but I didn't think that was probably going to happen this year. Were there any surprises, though, for you on the three all NBA teams that were announced?
1: Uh the only uh you know I I did my little my little guesses beforehand and I had them pretty much close to the same. I had I had Rudy Rudy Gobert on the first team and Anthony Davis on the second team, but those are pretty interchangeable and I also had uh had Gordon Haywood on the third team instead of Jimmy Butler. But I guess I guess I gave a little extra love to those the two Jazz players, but mm-hmm. other than that I think I think you you can make good arguments for exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, you know, I've been fuming all day today. A lot, of, There were a lot of people out at work today, so I was pretty much just by myself. So I was kind of like thinking about the NBA for half of my work day And I was like fuming about Anthony Davis being on the all-NBA first team. I know everyone is like, oh, he's so great. He's so great. He's so great. Give me your elevator pitch on Anthony Davis. What's so great about him?
1: What's a, I mean? If you look at he has every he has every tool imaginable. I mean, he put up some of these incredible uh, box score lines and stat lines throughout this year. But but I'm with you. I thought Rudy Gobert was more valuable to his team. And I mean, it's just really hard to put a guy on first team who you know didn't have a very good team and was injured for injured for big chunks of the season. And that's tough for me. And-
0: Gets Boogie, and I was like, Well, that's it. Okay, you know, here comes New Orleans. They're gonna make a run. And like, he that didn't they couldn't put it together. And I know it takes a while. Well, that's what they say is it takes a while. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And I just feel like if somebody's that good and that incredible, he should have like the path should have been, you know, clear and just super easy for Boogie to just slide right in and make them as good as they're gonna be. I'm, I'm. Anthony Dave, I'm always trying to get Joe to convince me about why she loves Anthony Davis so much too. So I know this is just like some sort of a weird block that I have that he's, he's great. And I was actually looking at the, the numbers and he and Gobert's um, they were, their voting was super close. Um, They were like, yeah, Anthony Davis had 45 um, first team votes and Rudy Gobert had 43. So at least they were close, but yeah, I would have. I would have not put Anthony Davis in the first team. He has to show me more winning. He just yeah. does.
1: Yeah, he has a he has a kind of tough position with his team for the most part. He has. They're in a worse cap salary cap space than we are, um, <laughs> as far as as far as their wings and stuff go. But they have a great. They have a really good point guard. Now they got Boogie, and that's not that's not enough for me. He's, he's he's still got to win. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's he's got a lead. I don't know. That's that's just, that's is what I think about that. Um. So, but of course, the big thing everybody's talking about with the all NBA teams is that um, now Paul George and Gordon Hayward do not have the, uh, are not able to get the supermax contract. Like it looked like that they might be able to get. Um, what do you think? Do you think that's going to have repercussions for them? If you had to guess what was going to happen um, in the next couple years, do you think that's uh-huh. going to factor?
1: Uh, it's it's hard to tell. It seemed a lot like both of them were probably gone uh, after their following years any, or you know when they' when the contract's up anyway. Um, Paul George next year next year and uh, Gordon Haywood this year. It seemed like they were gone anyway. It didn't really seem like that was gonna make too much of a difference. But for someone like Gordon Haywood, maybe he, he did have you know maybe he was if he was 50 50 on leaving or staying, maybe this is the difference you know with him not being able to collect that money by staying with Utah that it's just another reason for him to leave. So I could see that, that being, um, you know, making a difference in that way. But other than that,
0: what about Paul George,
1: Paul George, um, you know, we've talked about Paul George a little bit. He's uh, I think he's gone either way. I think he's, I think Indiana's, Indiana's not going to have him in uniform after the following season.
0: Do you well? Do you think he's gonna? They'll hang on to him next year, or do you think they'll trade him? If you had to guess, I mean, because I know that we're just. This is like I'm always 100 percent wrong about everything. Like when is the more sure I am about something, more likely it is not going to happen. I think I've been wrong about every single free agent who left. I was like, he's never going to leave, and then they <laughs> always leave. So, if you had to guess, do you think that uh, Paul George w- is, will stay there for the year in Indiana, or if Indiana will trade him in order to avoid getting nothing?
1: I think they're gonna. Probably see how the first half of next year goes. My guess would be they'd probably try to bring in some pieces if they can this this summer and maybe get to the point of contention. And then if the you know if they're not doing well by the in the beginning of the year, maybe they pull the trigger and, and send him off somewhere else instead of losing him for nothing. Because they probably they probably starting to they'll probably have a sense of that point if he's one foot out the door already. But who knows if somebody can can bowl him over with the you know with some picks and some young players this this summer if somebody's willing to take that gamble, I think they jump on it.
0: I just, he's a rental. I mean, if everyone's so sure that he's going to the Lakers, like, why would you want him for a year? Especially right now. So, for instance, there's this little thing about how CJ and Dame want Paul George to come to Portland. Okay, say he does somehow miraculously come to Portland and whatever happens. He's running around telling, well, his people are running around telling everybody how much he wants to go to L.A. So why would we want him for one year right now when that's all we're going to get? Guess what? Cleveland and the team from the Bay Area are still gonna be amazing next year. So why do we wanna go all in next year?
1: And once again, it depends on what we have to give up. You know, if it's if it's one of our three bat, draft picks and maybe one other borderline player, if that was all it costs, then yeah, take a chance and, and you know, maybe the the risk is worth it that we get him for one year and maybe he likes it. You know, there's 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 that side of it too, but it, it all depends on his on his cost. You know, if we have to give up multiple pieces and draft picks in the future no way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm
1: with him.
0: I don't know it, it's 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 one of those things that I keep saying I don't want to talk about and then I keep talking <laughs> about it
1: <laughs> well, that elephant in the blazer blazer locker room you know it's yeah you know, social media you know when you think about improvements that three position is probably the position that's most liable for us to to make the pick and Paul George might be available I mean it, it makes sense but has to be talked about.
0: That's true. We got to talk about. It. Okay, well, we've talked about it. Let's move on. <laughs> Last time uh, Joe and I did a show, we went over our wish lists for next year. Um, I was wondering if you have anything on your wish list for the Trailblazers next season.
1: Uh, one of the big ones I have is for Nurk. I hope he keeps up his. Um, first of all, his his intensity, his heart. I mean, he played with a kind of a, a grudge. And it was awesome, and it worked well for him. He's a big guy, and when a big guy like that has a little bit of grudge and a fire under him, he can be very good. We, you know, we watch that. My wish—I think I got two wishes for him. Number one is that he that he keeps that up, and second wish for him is that he just stays healthy. And he's a this 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 injury that he had wasn't the only one he's had in his career. And injuries to big guys, you know, they can they. You know, when a big guy has a tendency to get injured, that doesn't really go away very often. So. Uh, my my wish list is is that he gets healthy. That's a big one.
0: Yeah, I know. I um I've I worry about that too. I um I I worry about um him being so young and yet uh, apparently kind of fragile at the same time and I just think oh no, is that going to last? And well, you know how it is in Portland. We've been we've been disappointed before by having like right in the palm of our hands. Holding right in the palm of our hands these wonderful centers, um, but you know I I know what you mean about it. I like the character that he brings to the team because he brings somebody who you know kind of has. A, initially, I was kind of opposed to his like sort of swagger and sort of um, uh, not really immaturity, but like kind of his silliness that that you know he that he displays during the game, and I was like you know a little bit down on him for that. But I think it is good to have somebody who mixes up the like the emotions and the um you know this this the social aspect of the team a little bit, like I don't think he um comes in and like you know busts everybody up, but he just comes in and keeps everybody on their toes, which I think is ultimately probably a good thing
1: yeah, I, I agree. you know maybe you know we talked about earlier about DeMarcus cousins coming midseason and having it not a be a positive effect on that that Hornets locker room, well, look what Nurkic came in, and maybe part of that is just his personality. He's kind of light, and, you know, maybe things kind of, you got to brought back mostly the same roster from Portland. Maybe things did get a little bit stagnant within the locker room, and things got repetitive, and you just bring in this guy who's playing with an edge, and it's kind of a little bit of a goofball, and maybe it was just kind of uh, inspiring a little bit, and it was re- refreshing.
0: That's a super good point. I had never really made the direct um, comparison between, like, how, uh, how Nurkic worked his way so smoothly into our lineup compared to, um, the apparent, uh, more difficult transition for Boogie down in, um, New Orleans. I hadn't really thought about that before. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. That was awesome. Very astute. Let's move on to, um, talking about some of the things you've been writing about. You, um, wrote a series of features about what your career was like playing overseas. I read, uh, there were three articles, right?
1: Three articles,
0: yeah. They were super, super interesting. So uh, I want to make sure to plug that for anybody who hasn't read your articles yet. They should totally take the time and go back and um, hear your story. But let's give a little summary of it um, for our readers so they know what they'll be, um, what they'll uh, be learning about. You are a local guy from Albany. Correct. So tell us a little bit about your family's connection with basketball and kind of how you were um, a, around or about basketball when you were growing up.
1: Uh, well, my dad was uh, my dad played in the NBA. Uh, so that, that was a big step to it. He graduated from Oregon State. So that's what brought us here. Uh, he played in um, 1970, 71 Bucks team that won the championship.
0: So what was what was his name for everybody who wants to go look him up on Basketball Reference?
1: His name is Gary Freeman.
0: Gary Freeman, okay.
1: I mean, yeah, he just played one year, but he got uh he played with Kareem and Oscar on that Bucks Championship team. And he got traded halfway over to Cleveland, who was an expansion team at the time. And he finished the year there, and then he ended up spending the next I wanna say seven years over in Europe and uh, and playing playing in Holland and Belgium.
0: Okay, so hold up. He played with both Oscar Robinson and Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Yeah. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and and so he was on that team for half the year and the, the team that they won the champion that team won the championship.
1: Correct. Yeah. But unfortunately, unfortunately, he didn't get a ring because at the at that time, you know, now if you're on the team at all during the season, you get a ring if your team wins the championship. But back then, it's just who finishes of the year.
0: Bummer. God, Anderson out, has a ring. He told your dad to totally have a ring. I uh-huh.
1: know. I'll let him know that he needs to make some phone calls.
0: <laughs> so did he ever? Did he ever talk about it? Were you born when, yet when he was playing in the league, or did you come out later?
1: No, I was. I was way later. I was even. Okay. I was even four years after he was done playing in Europe.
0: Does he ever talk about it? Did he ever talk about it to you while you were growing up?
1: Yeah, he did. I wish. I wish I'd have been a little bit. I wish I'd have poked out a little bit more and got more stories. But one, uh, you know, it's mostly when we're watching games and and watching players and we're talking about players and that kind of stuff. And he'll bring up, you know, he'll bring up skyhook and you know how he hates the baby hook and prefers the skyhook of course He'll talk about, when we talk about all-time greats he gets really angry when Oscar doesn't get his uh, um, you know his the support that he my dad feels he deserves talking about how great of a player he was in person and all that stuff so it's kind of fun to kind of hear him compare with other pit players of, of the time now
0: does he um? Does he uh have uh, thoughts about comparing the you know the league back then to the league now? I know some people have very strong opinions about it.
1: Well, my dad's a pretty biased guy, and when he played in you know if he plays in the NBA in the '70s, he's not going to say it's worse then than it is now. He's not that type of person. So yeah, he's, he's he's never going to concede to that.
0: Well, and especially, I mean, if he's playing with Oscar Robinson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar,
1: <laughs> he was a pretty pretty high level talent, absolutely.
0: So the uh, he got traded to the expansion team in the middle of the year. Like, had they already expanded and they needed more players, or how did that work?
1: That was that was their uh, Cleveland's first year in in existence, and so they had just started the season. They had just won the first couple months, and he said he had his best game ever. They had just played against Cleveland, Milwaukee played Cleveland when he was on Milwaukee. He had his best best game ever against Cleveland. And then a couple days later, Cleveland traded for him, and it turned out to be a bad situation. But actually, it was kind of funny because my dad, when he when he ended up going to Cleveland, he took he was number twenty three with Cleveland. And there was a uh, maybe a couple years ago, I was watching watching TV, um, and they had a, a question like, "Who was the who was the first person to ever wear twenty three for the uh, for the Cavs?" You know, because they're talking about. Him. I was like, "Hey, I actually know the answer to that question."
0: So basically, LeBron is wearing your dad's jersey.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs>
0: well that's awesome so did you like basketball did you grow up loving basketball
1: oh yeah I was just obsessed with it that was all I wanted to talk about all I wanted to do all I wanted to play I mean it was just my sisters were big basketball players too it was, you know we had a, we had the uh the court in my, in my driveway you know we had the hoop up there and so yeah I was that's was where I spent all my time
0: In in uh one of your articles you talk about you were pretty small in high school and then you went through a growth spurt and you got um, was that like towards the end of your high school career when you got bigger and started, um, thinking about playing more, uh, later?
1: Yeah. My, uh, my freshman year, I was, uh, started the season at five, eight and then my sophomore year, I started at six, five. Holy then,
0: Moses. What? Yeah. Six,
1: seven is <laughs> a junior and then six, nine is a senior. So it was a huge transition period, uh, for that, for that, what, nine inches in, in a year.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: I went. I went from being a point guard to a center.
0: I feel like I've heard that that happens a, a, a lot, especially like as young guys come into the NBA, like they're guys who've gone through a really fast growth spurt, and like maybe some of the reasons that some of I don't know I have this theory that some the reason some of our really big guys are so good is because they were playing point guard until recently.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like you should go. You should Google pictures of. You should Google pictures of CJ McCollum? And oh his. yeah. You've seen those, I'm, I'm sure. Oh yeah, with
0: it. Costa Cufas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love those pictures. So, um, you played, uh, you went to JC, or you know, in the in Oregon, just uh, we call it community college. Um, yeah. and then you got to play D1 ball.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, when I graduated high school, I was I was six nine, but I was probably 170 pounds. So I got I got a couple I got a couple D1 offers, but is. Um, you know, I was, I hadn't reached my peak yet and I was still, you know, growing into my body. And so I, I needed more time to kind of figure things out to see, you know, exactly what kind of player I was going to be. So yeah, I went to junior college for a couple of years and then ended up getting a, a scholarship to Long Beach State and, and went there.
0: So when at that time were you thinking about like you, that you might make a career of playing basketball or was it just, it, you loved doing it and you wanted to keep playing it and you wanted to go to school and you could do the two things at the same time. Were you thinking about the future or were there guys that you played with who were like focused on the future?
1: Uh, coming into Long Beach state, I, I kind of, I kind of felt like I had a chance to, to make a career out of it. Uh, you know, I was thinking NBA, of course, you know, that's always, always the goal, but, but yeah, I, I felt like I was starting to get the hang of it, and I was starting to grow into my body a little bit. And you know, I, was, I still loved it. I was excited about it. So yeah, that was that was always my goal. Uh, I played with a couple guys. Um, one guy in college who ended up going to the NBA. Uh, his name was Casper Ware. Um, he played uh, played with the Sixers for a little bit. And so he was he was a freshman. I was a senior. Uh, we had a couple other guys that were had some had some looks as well. So we had some we had some scouts around in the in the gym from time to time. So when
0: you were playing in college, um, did you ever play against um, teams and players, or teams that had players that you could just tell had were like electric and were like headed to, um, you know, beyond to the next level?
1: Uh, Well, we played, um, we played BYU, so we played Jimmer Fredette. Okay, a sophomore freshman, so and he was he was one of those he was a gunner, right? You know, right from day one. You didn't really know he was going to be an NBA player, but you just saw the way he played and he was just very noticeable um and then we played against the only other two guys i think we played against that ended up going to the nba were johnny flynn out of syracuse who have didn't have much of an nba and he, he was a
0: blazer for a hot second
1: he was a blazer for that's true <laughs> yeah but that, that didn't a very hot second yeah and then marcus landry was the was the other one but not a whole lot of not a whole lot of big stars in college
0: I believe I read in one of your articles about a specific blazer who you did get to play against. Um, you're, you played against Weber State.
1: Yes, that's right. I did play against uh, Damian Lillard two times.
0: So what was that like? Like, did he have and did was did anything stand out about him at the time?
1: So I do I do actually remember what I remember more of than the actual game was the scouting report on him. So we played him. So we played him twice. It was my senior year. We played him twice. We played him the third game of the season, and I think it was, like, 20 days later. First game was at our place, and it was his third career game. He was a freshman that that season. And so, and he was coming off the bench the first game. We played at our house. And I remember we didn't have a whole lot of information on him uh, at that point. And that game, I think he ended up going, uh, going one for nine. He, but he still led their team in shots as a freshman. And so that kind of got us, you know, kind of – Knew the guy had some had some um, had some confidence, and then uh, we ended up playing them 20 days later. And he was one of the guys on the scouting report. And I just remember that our our coach was just was just stressing how how confident and how you know he is a freshman, but you wouldn't get you wouldn't guess that by how he played on the on the court. Just with his maturity and, and all that. And he ended up having 15 five and five, went three for four from three point line, and he I mean he was the best player on the court that day as a freshman. So it was kind of nice that I got to see his his jump from game three to game you know seven or eight or whatever it was, and it was it was already pretty massive. So when, wow. you, when you think out, I I remembered him.
0: Wow, that is yeah, that's amazing to think about. You know, eighteen year old Damian Lillard, like his first game, you know, just like coming out there just shooting like crazy, and then having grown and learned that much in just twenty days.
1: Yeah, yeah, confidence was never an issue for that guy. <laughs> Which is a surprise to nobody.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. So after college, you ended up transitioning to going into the um, uh, playing in Europe. Talk a little bit about how you made that leap.
1: Um, well, it's just after after um, college basketball was over, and I guess in the last month or so, you started getting some some emails from agents about you know wanting to continue your career, and uh, I found a guy that that I, I liked and I trusted and kind of put things in in his hands. And then as the summer was going on, he told me he felt comfortable about being being able to find me a team. So I was just staying in shape and getting ready and waiting for that call. And then finally that call came in and he said, Hey, Brian, I got a, got a good deal for you. It's going to be in Poland. You leave in like four days. Whoa! And I was like, pack your bags, get on the plane and go.
0: So you were, um, uh, down in Long Beach state and then you came back home for, for the summer and you just kind of waited to hear if you were going to get a call.
1: Uh, actually I was in Long Beach state when I got the call and then I flew home packed and then went. So it was a like, real quick four days. And how old were you? 22
0: in your twenties?
1: 22, I believe. Yeah. 22.
0: And they're like, okay, pack your bags. You're going across the world.
1: <laughs> across, um, yeah.
0: how, what was that like going to a, a new country to play a game that you've been playing for a long time, but was it really the same game? Did you have to make adjustments when you got over there?
1: Um, I wouldn't say the game was too much different. I mean, the the biggest difference is you go against from playing, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 year old boys to playing 30 year old grown men. You know, the people are just, the guys are just, they're not not as athletic, most of them, but they're just grown men out in in those leagues. And so that was one of the bigger, the bigger steps. Um, my coach didn't speak any English. So that was a big, big step. But I think the biggest, the biggest difference was, you know, when you're in, in college, you have your practice and you have your lifting, but the rest of the time is filled with school and school is a big part of your day. You have study halls and you got to, you know, study for tests and all that kind of stuff. And it was just so such an unbelievable, and I don't mind school at all, but it was such an unbelievable feeling to only focus on basketball. Like I could get extra shots up and I wasn't missing anything else up and I could get extra workouts in. And, and, you know, it was, it was different to have your whole life dedicated just to basketball opposed to having school as well.
0: Did, do you feel like you uh, improved a lot given that extra time? um or did you spend a lot of time just like adjusting your game to the game that was being played, or were you like, i've got I got time to get those extra shots up. I'm gonna get even better?
1: Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely all about improvement. I had a couple uh, veterans are on my team that played in the NBA a little bit, and and so I, I had some you know I really leaned heavily on the when I was a rookie, of course, you know, I leaned heavily on the veterans to kind of learn. You know how to go about things you know I started learning about how to eat right and and doing different kind of workouts and, and one of the guys who was on my team is now the uh shooting coach for the Brooklyn Nets and so he's a so he took me through a lot of shooting drills and I learned a lot of a lot of cool little things from him and so I guess I had some good good um good people to lean on and, and I think that first year I I uh, really improved
0: okay so I don't I don't know how to play basketball at all. Like I think I played one year in fifth grade, and I don't think I like get a single bucket the whole entire time. But I have a Will Barton basketball that's sitting in the corner of my office that I keep thinking that I like want to get out there and play with it because Will Barton signed it. So I know you're not supposed to use it, but to me it's like, well, that's why I should use it because it's got Lucky Will Barton's signature on it. So what uh what what were the most important tips that you learned uh for sh- that you would pass on to me, a beginning shooter um on uh you know how to make some buckets
1: uh first one is first one i would just say repetition i mean in uh in long beach you know after we'd go shooting afterwards you'd get up about 100 200 shots when i got to poland i started learning you get up you're supposed to get up four or 500 makes after practice you know and just the amount of shooting you you realize what's kind of for fun and what's you know four serious. or
0: five hundred makes
1: yeah before we could how
0: long leave. does that take
1: um hour and a half two hours so oh now.
0: my god Gosh, that would take like a year and a half for me to do.
1: from if you go from not playing since 5th grade and you're making 500 shots a day, you're going to be you be awesome in just a matter of days, of weeks.
0: So so I don't know much about how the European league uh, works. So what's the season like? When like when does it start? Is it is it year round? Do you play in tournaments or is it more like the NBA where it just starts and then there's playoffs and it's over?
1: yeah it's 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 like every country has their own n b a and then there's there's leagues that's like inner inner uh, inner country- inner country leagues uh, like Poland has their polish league france has their french league you know so it's just like the n b a um I spent most of my time in france and uh so I understand the timeline's a little better and for the most part we start before the n b a season and we finish afterwards, but it's much less games it's mostly weekend games for the most part so
0: okay. So you're playing like two games a week instead of like three and a half.
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: And you're doing it over, say, like nine or 10 months rather than six or seven, something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, it's less games, but it's more, I mean, practice is a bigger part of your life as a European than it is as an NBA player.
0: So um, the team that you played on for the longest time was in France. Is that correct? So tell us a little bit about that team. What's the character of that team? Like if I was going to move to France, why would I be the, why would I be a fan of that team?
1: So we were, it's just a little, uh, it started as just a a little town. It's probably, I think I had 50,000, 60,000 people in the town. And it was one of those things. It was um, their girls basketball team was the, was the highlight of the, of the city. And then they had a really good rugby team. They didn't really have a, have a men's team. So the team was created, created the year before I got there. Actually, my, my roommates was on Long Beach that was on that team when it got created, who recruited me to go play there. Um, So that's how I ended up there. But you know, it's just one of those little towns. It's real, uh, you know, southwestern France is real rural, a lot of farm areas. So you get people coming from those small towns that all want to come see, and they get really, uh, uh, it's really friendly. You get, you get to know people really well. You know, they, um, you know, if you're in Paris and, and stuff like that, there's a lot of st- other stuff to do. In these little towns, you get really familiar with your community, and the community becomes a big part of your, of your team. And, and I think that was one of the things I found most special about being in, in that area and with that team. What was the team called? The team is, well, it was a combination of two teams, of Tarb and Lourdes. Maybe you know, Lourdes is a big uh, biblical city, um, in case you know it, but yeah, it was just a combination of two little, little cities.
0: And so you played, like, re- you played regionally, is that, or did you, used st- all within France?
1: Yeah, it was just all of France, so had most of the good basketballs all up in the north, so we were the, the team from the south that had to travel everywhere. Well, oh,
0: okay. So you had more travel than everybody else. Did you get, uh, travel on buses?
1: We had a big team bus that we took, uh, at times, but we'd, we'd fly at times. Like when we played in Paris, we we're just going to fly to Paris cause it's quick, easy flights. But if it was going to be something long with not an airport within um, reasonable distance, then we had those big sleeper buses. So, we uh, we just take those big buses.
0: Cool. So what was the best team you ever played on? Like what was it like, um, college or, you know, in Europe, what was the, what was the most fun you had in a season? And what was the best team that you ever played on?
1: Best team I ever played on was probably my, either my first or second year in France. Um, and it was kind of one of the reasons I, I, I stayed there. It was just, a. Uh, uh, it was a team that that got together real, real well. You know, I talked about the community, and and we ended up winning a, a championship that year. So of course that was too.
0: Oh, cool! So did you have to go through like a whole playoff series and everything, and um to to win the championship?
1: Yeah, yeah, we had a. So they do it a little different. They have um um uh, multiple different leagues, and the top two from each league go up, and you play the second seed from a different league, and then the top four get together, and you have a um, semi and final.
0: So were there any, like, um, uh, was it like a, a close game, close championship, tens, tight moments, or did you just like, were you like, you know, Cleveland Cavaliers just, you know, <laughs> up by 41 points at halftime?
1: No, our championship, um, that season, it was a best of three. And then, and it's different in, in France. You go the first game away and the next two home. So it's a huge advantage to be the home team. And so we won, the. Um, we won the first game out their place, um, out by one and then ended up taking care of business at home.
0: Did you get like a big flashy ring or anything?
1: No, we didn't, we didn't do rings. We, they, we talked about it. We had people propose it, but.
0: So the players who are playing in Europe, how, um, how does everybody follow the NBA? Um, do they follow it closely or are people just going about their lives, you know, doing their, doing their own thing?
1: No, they, I mean, some people more than others, but for the most part, I think all the players do. I like, got everybody on my team, you know, we talk NBA, you know, I obviously brag about the Blazers when they were, when they were good. And I, you know, not talk basketball so much when they were good, of course. But, but yeah, all the, all the players, of course, know the, know all the players and a lot of stuff about them. Of course, you know, the basketball fans, but a lot of the, a lot of the fans, not, not nearly as much
0: they're more in it for the like the civic pride and the it's the thing to do on the weekend that kind of thing
1: right well, there's a lot of i mean a lot of the the european teams are ran through through lots of volunteers so you get a lot of a lot of people in the community kind of helps helps the team run and some of them don't even some of the people don't know anything about basketball couldn't tell you the rules but they just like the spirit and the atmosphere and being part of something some bigger and it's it's pretty it's pretty much like that throughout europe and in every different sport you know, soccer and rugby and all that, all those, all those different sports. So it's kind of a cool atmosphere for, for them and for, and for us, of course.
0: Did you play with players in the European league who were trying to get, um, you know, found and scouted and discovered and moved over into the NBA? Did did that ever happen? Did anybody get plucked out and moved over to the NBA?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of players, that's, that's the ultimate goal, goal is to get to the NBA. A lot of the players that I played against had played in the NBA or had been in the, the developmental league so you get a lot of I mean the the top players in Europe and the, the bottom players in the NBA are, are very in or very exchangeable uh-huh. you know there's not there's not much of a talent talent gap between them and so it's just about being seen being able to get that one tryout and all that uh, I mean I played against uh, in Poland I played against the uh, ex-blazer Quintel Woods and when we when we got there, I was kind of asking my teammates, like, so who's the best the best player on Poland? They're like, oh, the Lebron of the Lebron of Poland. You don't know him? I was like, no. Who are you talking about? They're like, Quinchell Woods. You don't know him? I was like, I know him, but not as the Lebron. The of-
0: Lebron of Poland. Oh my gosh, that's awesome.
1: <laughs> so you kind of wonder sometimes you're here and you know you you know Quintel Woods, you know, as a Blazer fan and all of a sudden he just kinda of disappears on the map. It's like where have you been? It's like, Oh, you're the LeBron of Poland. Okay.
0: Wow, I guess that's doing pretty well for yourself if you're the LeBron of Poland. I wouldn't mind being LeBron of anything, really. <laughs> <laughs> So one of your articles that you wrote was super interesting, and it was about um, how players take care of themselves um, and through injury, and how you um, you know how you recover from injury, and what it's like when you know you're somebody whose livelihood depends on playing, and suddenly you get hobbled by an injury. Um, you want to maybe talk about some of the highlights of of that? Hit on some of the points that you were making in that article. Um, it was around the time when Nurkic was. Um, Gonna play, not gonna play. So maybe talk about some of the things that goes through the mind of an of a professional athlete um, while you're trying to recover, as well as you know, be responsible and preserve your career.
1: Yeah, and that's a that's a big question that comes up a lot, just because you know, obviously, fans have their their point of view and the the teams have their point of view, and that's what you hear about for the most part when it comes to a player should he play, should he not play, you know, what the risks actually are. But so much of it, you know, even the Blazers came out and and, and said that. If Nurkic feels like he can play, then he can play. And they kind of put the onus on him, which is which is difficult because a guy like Nurkic, you know, he's proven himself. He wants to be a, the guy that plays through injury. Everybody wants to be the guy who's tough and plays through injury and can fight through everything. But that's not, you know, in your, that's not in your best interest. That doesn't help you. That's, that's you know, if you're going to go out and re-injure yourself, the fans will be fine. The team will find somebody else, and, and you're in trouble. You know, and so this, this article was mostly to kind of um, – you know, look at look at what the player actually goes through and kind of, you know, I talked about some of my experiences uh, coming back too early and really hurting myself even more. Um, I had a small tear in my calf one time and tried to play on it twice and both times set myself back and ended up, it should have been a two-week injury, ended up costing me like 10 to 12 weeks or something like that because I kept tearing it and, you know, I came back because I wanted to be tough, you know, you wanted to be that guy and people would talk about, oh, I can't believe you played, that's awesome. Well, yeah, but I set my team back. I set myself back. You know, the next year we talked about if I was an injury risk or, you know, and so it's definitely hard to walk that line. I think a lot of people don't really understand how difficult that line is to walk, especially when it's up to the player to make the decision.
0: Yeah, that was really enlightening for to me, actually, when I, when I read that. Because I was, I remember them saying the Trailblazers, or, you know, Nurkic's, saying that it was up to him, you know, whether or not he was going to play. And I was like, how could they possibly leave it up to him whether he was going to play? And what I didn't really understand is it's not like they're like, hey, you can play if you want to play. But it's more like he needs to be able to tell whether or not his body is feeling the kind of pain that he should stop. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I didn't, I thought it was just he would be like, yeah, I want to play or I don't want to play. But it was more like... It's really, really hard to tell. You have to describe your pain, and they have to understand
1: right. what you're saying. And in the and in the article, I talk about no, play, you know, throughout the season, no player's healthy. Throughout that season, you go through so many little tiny injuries and and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes it gets it gets hard to differentiate between something that's just kind of, eh, it's probably going to go away in two or three days, or something that's actually wrong. It gets really, really gray. I mean, there's there's black and white on two spectrums but there's a lot of gray in between and you know as players we're not doctors you know we think we we think we know what's right we disclose what we can but it's really hard to tell and we can't we can't describe exactly so the trainer feels what we feel and so you know you try to do your best and you know they say is there any pain you kind of think well kind of but it's kind of normal pain like i always feel so i don't know if that's something that i don't play because of it or um, you know, I'm just going to risk it and just go out there and see what happens, you know, and it's, it's, it's a tough call and there's a lot more that goes into it. than I think people understand.
0: Yeah, I found that I I found that super interesting. And it really made me think about it from from a different point of view, even in just the communication aspect, like you're talking about it, you have to describe how it feels. And then they have to interpret that as whether I mean, they can look and see if your bones broken. That's kind of like a best case scenario, because you can see yes, it's broken, you do not play. (laughs) But, um, you know, everything, everything else, it's like, you know, is it, a, is it a tear? Is it a strain? Is, are you going to go out there and make it worse? And I, I imagine that a lot of the decision is based on, can you make it worse?
1: Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and then there's also the, the compensation part of it that, you know, is also difficult. Like I, I, at one point I tore my Achilles. And then from then on, I never had any problem with my Achilles, but I came back too early and I started getting back problems and started getting knee problems. And people would ask me, how's your Achilles? And I'm like, oh it's great. I got, I'm, I'm fine. I don't have any pain in it. But it ended up that ended up being the the death of my career because I kept trying to play on it up kept getting other injuries and and it just wasn't ready yet. And so, you know, things like that, you don't as a player, you ask, Is your Achilles fine? Yes, it's fine, so I'm gonna play on it. It doesn't hurt, of course I'm gonna play on it. But it wasn't ready. And just, just things like that. So there's a there's just a ton to ton to consider and
0: there's 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 a there's a lot and uh, people should read that article uh, and one more article that you wrote about you talked about the off season, um and that's that's where our Blazers are right now. Sadly, they're not still playing in May, but you know we will we'll get there. Um, so yeah, uh, give us some of the highlights of um of uh the of the off season for um someone who uh, plays sports professionally.
1: Yeah, most of that article I tried to try to talk about just the, the beginning the first couple of days I think I'm gonna have another one later that will talk about more like the workout aspect of it and getting back in shape and, and that part of it try to talk more about um, about what it what it feels like for that moment when the season's actually over you know and, and what what kind of things go through your head the kind of feeling there's a of course the first thing is there's just that that gaping hole you have this free time and you don't really get free time you can you can travel and that's you know you can you know during the game you don't have or during the season you don't have days off you can't you know you don't call in sick you don't plan the other stuff you don't plan anything throughout your entire season pretty much and so you know we kind of talk about try to explain that feeling of having the season over and you have this free time and you know you need to stay in shape but you also kind of need to you know rewind a little bit and, and you know take a vacation or take a couple of days off and, and just kind of get your mind, mind back ready to go again.
0: Did you have a routine? Did you come home back to the States in between seasons to, um, typically?
1: I came back pretty much days after the final game in the beginning of my career. And then as I got a little bit older, especially when my wife and baby were out there, you know, we had things we wanted to see and we want to spend some time in Europe and and all that kind of stuff. But but my routines changed pretty much year to year, depending on how I was feeling how my body was, and you know, sometimes as soon as the season was over, I, I felt like I was ready to get back in the gym and get back in the weight room and start working. Other times, I just I didn't want to see a basketball for a couple of weeks.
0: Now, one of the other things that you talked about in that article um was about a, at the end of every season, there was a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen the next season.
1: Yeah, being a free agent was, uh, I mean, it's, it's 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 it can be stressful. It's, you know, once again, I bring my family into again. When you have a family, it's more stressful and you know and and I was lucky enough to get to a point where I had a team that that I trusted and so I, I did all my own negotiations I didn't use my agent for my last four or five years but it got to a point where we could just sit down and have a con, uh, conversation and I didn't have to go to other teams and get offers to show that you know what kind of money I felt like I deserved and all that kind of stuff we were able to have that those conversations but for the first couple of years it's it's you're getting emails from your agent less than you'd want to and with, you get your updates and it's like, oh, maybe there's a team in Russia. Oh, maybe there's a team in Luxembourg. Oh, maybe there's a team in Germany. And so you kind of get this in your head and, you know, you're bouncing between, you know, you don't know what kind of coach you're going to get. You don't know what kind of teammates you're going to get if you're bouncing from one country to another. So it can be stressful to, to pick a team. You know, Eventually, you just end up pretty much just choosing the money because you don't really know. But it's, it's better when you can kind of get in a situation where you know what you're getting yourself into of course
0: how long were you with um your team in france
1: uh six years
0: that seems like a is that a, a pretty long time or is that pretty uh typical for uh, european leagues
1: in, in europe most of the most of the players and by most i would say between 90 and 95 percent pretty much uh, just signed one year deals one or two year deals max and it's about having good season, putting up good stats, and going to another team and trying to get more money and going to another team. It's a lot of bouncing around, and I just I bounced around. I went three teams in my first two years, or four teams in my first two years, and then uh, ended up just kind of finding something comfortable and and I felt good about it, and we kept improving, so it was, I just stuck with it.
0: What's that like coming into a team like brand new? You know, Boogie just did it, Nurkic just did it. Uh, what's that like?
1: It's fun. It's it's fun if you're in the right atmosphere. If you have uh, uh, people that are are welcoming you, and you know, if you're if you fit in well, you know, I think Nurkic had the had the benefit of of coming to a team that had Damon C J, who had leaders that you, you know wanted him to succeed and put him in the best position to succeed. And I was lucky enough to get in the same situation where the other players were very welcoming of me. That the community you know, welcome me and my, my family and huge, and my baby's a bigger star there than, than I am choosing the newspapers and stuff like that. So, so they were really, um, they were really good and accommodating to us and, and, you know, pretty much throughout. So it, it made it a much easier transition.
0: So you've talked a couple of times about, um, how close you were with the community there. Did they, were there like, um, you know how the Blazers like they go out into the community and do community events and stuff like that. Was it was it that kind of involvement with the community, or was it just like you were living amongst everybody and they all knew you and they saw you all the time and they like cheered you on? What was that like?
1: Um, it was it was mostly you know in a small small town. You know we we walked almost everywhere, so we were always out in the town and checking out new places and going to see our favorite people that sold the right things. You know. Uh, you know the people who have the good cheese, or the good steaks, or the good wines, or you know we had our we had our people we went to uh, for everything. So you start making connections that way, and I mean we still have some of, some of our best friends or best family friends are are all in France. And we had people fly from France to America to go to our wedding. We just got real um, just got real close with everybody, and um, and it just just made a world of difference.
0: So did you talk about the Blazers a lot while you were over there?
1: Oh, all the time. Yeah, I had <laughs> I always wore Blazer gear. Uh huh. So I have a bunch of you know blazer sweatshirts, blazer hats, and so a lot of my like uh, after practice, you know, walk around the city clothes is blazer blazer gear. <laughs> That's
0: awesome. Did you convert any uh, blazer fans?
1: Um, I probably have, I probably educated a lot of them on who the players were, <laughs> but I don't know if I actually converted anybody.
0: You try. What, what's your what's your best line to try to get people to watch the Blazers? Like when you're trying to convince somebody like, oh, you should like all the there's a lot of really great NBA teams, but you should really watch the Blazers because.
1: Portland is the best city in America. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my best argument for. Them.
0: Are you going to have people come over and watch games? You should probably have some people from France come over and go to Blazer games with you.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as soon as, as soon as we get them out here, that's one of the things we promise is when we when we buy our house, we're gonna have like a, a mother-in-law unit, an extra extra place just for French French people to to come in and out.
0: <laughs> that's really cool. Well, I don't want I don't want to get get to get you in any trouble for this, but who were some of your favorite teammates, or what was some of the characteristics of your favorite teammates?
1: Well, luckily, my um, it was my best my best friend, my roommate from Long Beach State, that brought me over there. So being able to play, you know, one of the things that's that's and one of the downfalls about being over in Europe is you're kind of all alone. Like you don't have all your friends, you don't have your family, uh, unless you bring them over there. So my first four or five years it was like that. Or my first three or four years was like that. And then when I was with my, you know, my my best friend playing on the same team, it's kind of a dream come true. We were with each other all the time, and and so he would definitely be one of them. But um, you know, there was also a a guy who I who was like 16 when I got there, Guadalupean kid uh, who. Played on the yeah, played on the, the men's team and he became he became like my little brother and so um, you know and then multiple other ones. I have another friend who was uh who was out there playing at thirty eight and is one of our longtime friends who's, um, who's there as well. So I mean you just make those connections and and one thing we really tried to do when we brought in new players was was character was everything. You know, we'd call their old coaches, their old teammates, and try to find connections and, and so character was big. So I, I was fortunate enough to play with a lot of really good players really good people
0: for you and your experience what makes a a good teammate on the floor
1: uh somebody that just somebody that understands their role understands what they're supposed to be doing and and positivity is just huge i mean it's okay to it's okay to you know get on someone but um you need to do it for the reasons that's that's best for the team you know and people who if you put your team first and and you play hard and you give it your effort then i mean i don't really care what you like as a person if you can do that you're gonna be my friend on the court and you
0: played. You played center. Is that correct?
1: Um, Sometimes I played. I played some three, but mostly four, and a little bit of five. Oh,
0: okay, so you played just, uh, just the uh, front, um, pretty much front court, all anywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: What What were some of your best moves? What was like your 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 moves that you could depend on that you knew you could do
1: every time? Uh, the the baseline spin that I oh I sh- fancy stole that from Hakeem Olajuwon. I used to. As a young kid in elementary school, I was working on that, and so that was one of those I just had my my post move arsenal my, my whole career, and that was my my go to.
0: Nice. I gotta next time I see you in person, I want a demonstration of that.
1: Yeah, sounds good. We'll get your Will Barton ball, and we'll go out there and do some. <laughs>
0: that sounds awesome. And how about um, defense? What was your uh, signature defensive
1: move? My signature defensive move? Boy, I don't know. <laughs> try to do a good job and be in the right spot. I was pretty good. I was a really good help side defender. I would say that was probably my my, my strength. I wasn't a super off athlete, so I didn't block up a ton of shots, but I was always in the right position. I was a good help defender all again.
0: Okay. So Joe and I talk about this a lot. She's super into defense and I'm really into offense. And my problem is, is I watch offense, I get so excited, and then as soon as the ball – gets turned back over to defense I like get distracted and I'm like getting popcorn or something so it's not that I don't like defense it's just that I never see defense because that's when I like relax and kind of stop check out for a second but I'm always curious what should I be watching for so what what do you what do you watch for when you're watching a game are you watching offense are you watching defense what are you watching when you're enjoying just watching a game
1: i watch the I watch what the coaches do a lot. like I, love- I like watching the game as a coach, like why is he doing this? Why is he calling this play? And then the other thing I like to watch is I like to watch the body language of players. you know I love if a, you know if a player's over here pointing and and shouting on defense and trying to direct and and keep people going and you know yelling because there's a guy you know running the floor and have somebody pick him up like that's somebody I immediately put on my list is that guy knows what he's doing. he's mature. Um,
0: I love pointing.
1: <laughs> Your favorite part is point Yeah, I mean, me, me too. And I just, I mean, communication obviously is so big in, in every aspect, but especially on defense, you know, when it's loud and you're yelling and screaming and people can't hear you, and points solve all those problems.
0: I didn't really realize, I guess, that um... – I mean, I guess it was pretty obvious, but I never really – I didn't really catch on till later that, you know, pointing is a part of defense. And so I was saying that I wasn't – I don't really watch defense, but I do watch pointing. And that's one of the things that I really have enjoyed about Noah Vonley this year is I think he's one of the best pointers. But, <laughs> I mean, like, I'd say that half-jokingly, but, like, as he's always running down the court when he's setting up on defense, he's pointing and he's saying – either where he's going to go or where somebody should go. Like he is super active in communicating that way.
1: Yeah. Having teammates do that, just, I mean, that's just easy, easy baskets you're saving. Just doing something so simple as that is, you know, if you say, you know, watch the guy over on the wing and it's, you know, some of those gyms get really, really loud. And if that's what you're doing, if you're saying, watch the guy over the wing, there may be nobody that gets that message. And the guy might be open on the wing, you know, but if you're pointing then somebody can see that and say, okay, you know, and, I'm going to be, you know, he's going to be there. I'm, I know I'm supposed to be here. And it just solves just easy baskets. And that's the, I mean, the number one thing on defense you going to do, is just take away easy baskets. You can just take away free throws and transi- easy transition baskets and open jumpers. So that's all you take away. You're a good defensive team. And pointing can solve, you know, two of those three pretty easily.
0: How are you from three?
1: Um, I always shot a good percentage, but I didn't, wasn't a high volume shooter. So I was around, I was around 40 to 36 to 40%, I think almost every year but I was only probably one three point attempt a game.
0: Not bad. Well, you know, you gotta get, gotta get that volume up. I'm all, I I feel really kind of bad saying this, but I kind of enjoyed watching Houston this year and all those threes. I don't know. I guess it's one of those things I didn't really know about myself, but I turns out I really like threes as well. Um, but I like volume threes and I can't stand it when people hesitate, like, uh, like, you're behind the three-point line. You're in your little spot. Your feet are not touching it. Why are you trying to figure out what you should be doing? Put the ball up in the air.
1: I feel like you've yelled that at Myers Leonard and Alan Crabb multiple times this year. Am I correct?
0: Oh, dear sweet boys. Well, um, we're running up against time. It's been super great talking to you. Really interesting um, hearing hearing the stories um, about what it's like to be a player overseas. I could never imagine it um, for myself, so I'm got to got to get some of my curiosity abated by asking you questions. Is there anything that we didn't uh, touch on that you know last words about you know about playing that maybe people maybe fans haven't really thought about? It was super interesting what you were saying about the. Um, you know, the injuries and um, some of the things that we don't really think about, like what it's like when your whole life is basketball, suddenly the season is over and, you know, anything we should be cutting people slack on?
1: <laughs> I don't have anything on the top of my head, but that's always kind of, you know, I'm starting this this column where I, you know, I came out with the uh, with a, um, article about after the season and about injuries and, and I don't really come up with the topics. I usually have other people do it because I don't really understand very easily what other people want to know or what they don't understand. And, and so sometimes it's nice to hear suggestions from other people about well, I don't I don't really know about this part of basketball. And it's like, oh okay. Then it's easier to talk about. Cause it's hard to look at, you know, the the view of the person that hasn't lived, you know, been through what I've what I've been through and see what's interesting and and all that kind of stuff. So um, I would I would say if you have anything that that, that you're thinking of that would be an interesting uh, interesting topic for for an article it's like please shoot me a message.
0: I'd love to know more about, um, kind of like players' relationship with coaches. Like, how much do you actually see them? Like, do you just show up and they're there, and then everybody goes home, or, um, you know, is there, you know, ec- uh, extracurricular interactions with the coaches? Um, I, you know, that's one thing that that we didn't really get to touch on that I'm kind of interested in, especially now that I find that you watch the coaches, it seems like you're you're um pretty in tune with
1: them. Wow, that's a that's a really really good. I haven't I have a big list of future articles I'm gonna do, and that's not on the list. But it's it's going on there as soon as this conversation's over.
0: Awesome. Then my work here is done. <laughs> so you want to tell everybody where they can uh, find your work, obviously on Blazers Edge. But how can they follow you on Twitter, and when your column's gonna be coming out, and stuff
1: like that? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. My name is Brian Freeman 24. Uh, it's mostly Blazer stuff, but every once in a while I throw some throw some NBA stuff in there. Of course, on Blazer's Edge, you can find me Me and Stephen DeWald are going to be coming out with another podcast. I know you consider you say your podcast is the other podcast, so we are now other other podcast. But we uh, took our first uh, steps into getting that into production yesterday, so I'll have it coming up. And, and feel free to shoot me emails if you have thoughts on things that – or Twitter messages if you have thoughts on, on anything you guys like, would like to hear from a perspective of a player.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I just want to remind everybody that they can find the Blazers Edge podcast on Stitcher and on iTunes, or they can just hop on over to BlazersEdge.com and find more of Brian's articles, more articles by lots of different authors who are going to continue to crank out awesome stuff all summer long. You might think the season for the Bla- the Blazers might not be playing anymore, but there's tons more basketball news out there, and we're just getting the second and third season started <laughs> with the draft and free agency coming up. So, Brian, thank you so much, um, and thanks to all of our listeners who, um, who came along on the trip today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, Tara. had a lot of fun.